Welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting in 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this year is 1929, the end of the 20s, and our 30 something year of, of doing this. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist in between bouts of uh, running Oppenheimer. Uh, and joining me, as always, is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker in between bouts of watching Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on, Glenn? Uh, not much. I'm gearing up to uh, go on a trip to Ireland next week, so that should yeah. be fun. Or this week, I should say. What are your plans? Um, let's walk around, drink some booze, go mm-hmm. look at some lovely landscapes... I, I never liked Guinness, but everyone was like, oh, but if you try Guinness in Ireland, it's so much better. It tastes so different. I'll it's find still out. bad. No. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe you can form your own opinion. Uh, but I thought that it was all, it also tasted like water in Ireland. <laughs> kiss the Blarney Stone. I, I know for a fact that we, I'm not going to kiss the Blarney Stone. That is not part of the itinerary. So. Really? I, yeah. I mean, I didn't when I went to Ireland as well, so... There you go. Yeah. I'll kiss some other stones. Yeah, find a rock on the ground and kiss it for me, all yeah. right? Some Neolithic rock <laughs> will get a smooch. Well, uh, in case you're... Uh, you know, we have this form, this podcast in multiple formats uh, that you may Indeed. be aware of, uh, so I just wanted to highlight that for all y'all out there in in podcast land we've got an audio version that you may be listening to on your podcast app of choice everyone's always like is it on spotify and i'm like yes it's on spotify listen it's on all the things it's on everything if it's on if it's on a place where you get podcasts it's probably there but then we also have a video version uh with uh some little bonus stuff some some posters that you're seeing sometimes a few clips but now that we're in the copyright era uh, it's it's a little less uh, it, it doesn't show you everything that it used to, but yeah. still, there's, there's just, some fun stuff in there. We can't just play like the whole movie in the background while we're talking about it. Anymore. Would be nice, yeah. But you know, uh, we're not talking about now with uh, with our current copyright system. We're talking about 1929. So why don't we get ourselves into the vibe of 1929 mm. that horrible great depression era by uh giving us a little bit of news to give us some context for 1929 why don't you take it away glenn the news of the year 1929 first in the funnies tintin and popeye debut in newspapers vatican city is established as a sovereign enclave separate from italy massacre on saint valentine's day five rivals of al capone are gunned down in chicago The first Monaco Grand Prix is held. Scientists around the world experiment with color television. The Young Plan establishes the amount of reparations to be paid to Weimar Germany for their crimes in the Great War. The Kingdom of Serbs, Croats, and Slovenes changes its name to the Kingdom of Yugoslavia. Panic on Wall Street! The New York Stock Exchange loses $30 billion in the span of five days and plunges the world into a Great Depression. Value is plummet, and people do too. Dark. <laughs> the Museum of Modern Art opens in New York City. The first Academy Awards are held in the Roosevelt Hotel in Hollywood. 
The University of Southern California breaks ground. Founded by Douglas Fairbanks, D.W. Griffith, Ernst Lubitsch, and other Hollywood royalty. USC becomes the first university to offer a Bachelor of Arts in Film. Some important Hollywood news at the end there. <sighs> There's no business like show business. That's what I always say. I think we, since we talked about the movies that actually won awards that that at that first award show, mm-hmm. it's sort of like we've talked about that already. Yeah, the 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 original Academy Awards was held in 29, but covered 27 and 28. Yeah. Uh, chiefly, the winners were from 27. Uh, yeah. In, in particular, Wings and Sunrise. Although we'll be talking about the winner, the Best Picture winner in the, at the 1930 Awards this episode. Yes. Uh, which I imagine we'll be covering most Best Picture winners as, as we go through time. Most, most not but I don't know. Do you want to make that a point? Like, we got, we got to watch all the Oscar winners. I don't know. I made a spreadsheet of every, like, Palm winner and... Mm. Uh, and Academy and Best Picture winner, and every movie on Roger Ebert's Great Movies list, mm-hmm. uh, and I was like, oh, we, and the AFI as well, the AFI right. Top Hundred, and the IMDb two two fifty. I made a wild spreadsheet, but yeah. uh, uh, you know, we don't need to we don't need to be uh, beholden to what the popular world tells us is important, but also right. they're probably important. I don't know. Yeah, that's kind of how I feel about it. Like. We'll probably end up watching a lot of them, but not necessarily make it, like, a rule. There is a rule. But, uh, uh, why don't we get started, as we usually do, with a little aperitif of One Week, One Reel. Mmm, an aperitif. Yeah, it's like an appetizer, but, uh, French. But, but uh, exactly. <laughs> um, Hordoovers. <laughs> uh... Well, we've got two right now. I think we should start with uh, a little animated short. Let's start with a cartoon. Uh, a Disney cartoon. Not a Mickey Mouse cartoon this time, though. The inaugural Silly Symphony. Indeed. and it's uh, called Skeleton Dance. Skeleton Dance. What? What a picture. <laughs> <laughs> How often do we say what a picture? I think every episode, but it applies here because Skeleton Dance is great. I love it. It's really good. Yeah. It is what it sounds like. It's a bunch of skeletons dancing. <laughs> have you seen this before? I have I have not. I'd seen like probably clips of it and like images from it for mm-hmm. sure, but I'd never just like sat and watched all several minutes of it. Um, And it's, it's just spooky fun. Yeah. Very Halloween-y. Like. Uh, it's... Um, it's got uh, yeah, it's got kind of a darker aesthetic than most Disney mm-hmm. stuff, but also it's like it's like fun, kid friendly dark yeah. aesthetic. You know? It's spooky fun. It's gravestones and bats and clouds yeah. <laughs> and and skeletons uh, and owls taking, and black taking yeah. each other's bones and playing their spines like a xylophone. Iconic uh, things that skeletons do. <laughs> This this really could be called like things that skeletons do. It's the it's the yeah. first in the uh, it's the first in the Pixar model of what do things get up to when we're not looking at right. them. It was the night the skeletons came to life. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, there there's no plot in this really. It's just it becomes a yeah. dark and spooky night, and the 
skeletons come out of the ground and then they just start having a jaunty fun time uh yeah. jumping around and dancing and uh and playing music and then uh, it becomes daytime and they're like oh dang gotta get back in the ground <laughs> uh, it definitely feels like it was made to kind of showcase sync sound which it was Right. I, well, yeah. Being a silly symphony, it's it's this mm-hmm. series is specifically like like let's do sound cartoons, yeah. uh, which not all of Mickey Mouse was uh, up until this point. Although all the the silent Mickey Mouse cartoons were converted to sound, so I think everything from Steamboat Willie on that Disney released was sound. Some kind of interesting stuff that happened to this movie. I will say that there's a lot more squashy and stretchy stuff going on than mm. any other Disney stuff we've seen so far. Uh, when the owl hoots, its whole <laughs> body kind of uh, uh, kind of bows and uh, expands and contracts. And uh, they do some, f- uh, some relatively complex animation with the skeleton spinning around and mm-hmm. kind of moving closer uh, to the camera that like, why, like, very drastically changes the perspective uh, yeah. s- stuff that isn't just moving things around as much as like actually kind of drawing perspective changes, which is more yeah, complex. Like, the thing with the skeleton, like coming towards the camera, like its face getting bigger. Yeah. Is it's like, it's really simplified. It's a really simplified skull when it's far away, but it like the animation, actually the drawing gets more complex as it gets closer to the, the camera. Mm-hmm. Um, in quotes, if you're listening to the podcast, it's not a real camera because it's animated. Um, but I thought that was a cool kind of thing where it's like the actual complexity of the drawing increases as you kind of the eye gets closer to it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this was also like many of early Disney movies uh, or ca- cartoon shorts was uh, chiefly animated by Ub Iwerks. Mm-hmm. And uh I was noticing at the beginning of this movie, this might have been the case with Steamboat Willie as well, I'm not sure, but uh, it said that it was uh, a Cinephone production. So Cinephone was a knockoff of Phonofilm. Uh, There's a guy named Pat Powers who made uh, made this company that distributed Disney movies up until uh, 2930. Mm -hmm. And... uh, he was also someone who uh, used to be kind of involved with Lee DeForest Company. He hired a, a, a technician from Lee DeForest Company and then, yeah, made made a knockoff of Phonofilm. And so he distributed Disney's movies and then was responsible for the sound on film technology of these early Disney films. And uh, Ub Iwerks was also kind of getting a little uh, frustrated with working with Walt Disney at this point. And so uh, a, pretty soon after this was made, he jumped ship to make his own film studio uh, under Pat Powers. He kind of poached him hmm. from Disney because Disney didn't treat him with a lot of respect, it seems like, hmm. uh, which checks out. <laughs> <laughs> Another fun fact about this movie that I read is that it was, uh, at least initially banned in Denmark for being, quote, too macabre. <laughs> was that a, a Danish accent? <laughs> no, that was sort of a uh, Bill Hader as Vincent Price accent. 
But um, <laughs> yeah, Denmark thought it was too macabre. There are some other Disney cartoons that from this year that we didn't watch for the podcast, but are, are similarly macabre, like Hell's mm. Bells, which is about Satan in hell. Uh, it's another silly symphony. But uh, it's not on Disney Plus, unlike this one, because it's oh. it's too uh, <laughs> it's a little too macabre. Oh wow, too macabre for Disney Plus. I know, just like a uh, uh, free solo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I-, I guess one other thing they'll say about this movie is that like they they have a lot of fun, inventive ways that they kind of use the bones for like visual gags like mm-hmm. there's a part where all four skeletons kind of crash into each other and then turn into like an eight-legged monstrosity at uh, bones. <laughs> <laughs> uh but then yeah like using them as mallets to play xylophones all that kind of thing yeah everyone knows that when you play a skeleton when you play a rib cage or a spine of a skeleton it sounds like a xylophone uh another short that we watched that is also a little spooky i guess yeah, a little macabre as well. Uh, indeed, is Un Chien Andalou. Thank you for being the one to pronounce that. Yeah. Uh, this is a joint venture between Salvador Dali and Louis Bunuel. Mm-hmm. And uh, very, very famous abstract, silent, yeah. avant-garde jam. Uh, a classic uh, surrealist film. Surrealist, yes. Um, Ancien Andalou in English translates to the Andalusian dog, mm-hmm. which I read why it's called that. I don't even remember what it is. It's it's a surrealist thing. It's like, there's no dog in the movie. No. <laughs> uh, it's, yeah. This movie is, is deliberately intended to be not necessarily confusing, but like kind of inscrutable. Right. Uh, yeah, there, there's nothing to scrute here. Uh, <laughs> it, it, uh, it, it's a bunch of, uh, I guess it's like a, a, like a lot of just series of just like violent, disturbing imagery. It kind of operates on like dream or nightmare logic of like yeah. kind of free flowing, almost like uh stream of consciousness stuff where like characters and things appear or disappear. Time moves in weird ways. There's, there's a couple title cards that are like, a week later, eight years later, like it's yeah, it's yeah. sort of it's all kind of a uh, you know a dreamlike series of bizarre imagery and scenes. But in many ways, it's kind of using film language to do that sort mm-hmm. of stuff, like with yeah. the time title cards. Like you can't, you know, Salvador Dali chiefly makes paintings, and you mm-hmm. can't really do a time jump in a painting. So that's yeah. that's sort of something that is kind of that they're able to play with by making it this visual medium. Another thing that they do is they create these kind of um, visual juxtapositions between different mm-hmm. shots, uh, like um, d- like a match cut between a hairy armpit and a sea urchin. <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing. <laughs> well, speaking of, of uh, match cuts and editing, this movie has probably one of the most famous cuts in... Wow. Movies, possibly. Come on, man. The most famous cuts. <laughs> I mean, in, in both senses, right? Like, it is just a a hard edit, right, in that sense. Yeah. But it's also, yeah, someone cutting an eyeball with a razor blade. Yeah. 
which is um, grody. <laughs> yeah, it's it's real uh, nasty to look at. It was so it, it cuts from a sort of close up of a woman having a razor blade lifted up to her eyeball, and then it cuts to a uh, a shot of the moon with a cloud intersecting it, and then it cuts to uh, extreme close up of an eyeball getting cut by the razor blade. Um, which is not a human eyeball. It is a goat eyeball, I believe from a dead goat. Hmm. Um, but it's still a real eyeball getting cut with a razor blade. And it's that thing that editing does where you cut from a real woman's face to a goat's eyeball and your brain connects the two. So it, in your head, you're sort of like, ah, that's a real eyeball getting I mean, cut. the eyeball, oh wait, but, but the eyeball is on like, is like in front of a human face, right? Like you're seeing it with like a like an eyebrow and cheek around it. Uh I remember it like you can if you look around the edges of the eyeball, you can tell it's a goat. Like you can see the hair and the Really the goatliness of it. The goatliness. Um, <laughs> like it's not composited onto a human face. It it is like once you know it's a goat eyeball, it's kind of obvious. I thought they just um, kind of like like put the goat eyeball like on top of her eyeball, but I, I don't know. Mm-mm. No, I think it's just a straight, real close up shot of a goat eyeball. Um, but knowing that it's a goat eyeball, you can you can tell. Oh yeah, you're right. I do see the hair. I'm just looking at it again. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, yeah, it fooled me. Yeah. See, like it it works really well, and it's just editing. Like, um. You know, it, it lets your brain do all the extra work. I, there's kind of a, 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 a fun backstory to this movie, um, which is that uh, Louis Buñuel and Salvador Dali uh, were, you know, uh, surrealist artists working in, in Europe. And they were swapping weird dreams that they had had. And Dali had had a dream about ants coming out of his hands, which is a thing in this movie. And Buñuel had one up where a cloud sliced the moon in half, like a razor cutting through an eyeball. And they were, you know, just swapping all these weird dreams they had. And uh, Buñuel was like, that could be a movie. Let's do it. And so they kind of threw together this, you know, this movie out of a bunch of weird dream imagery that they had come up with. Um, and there's... Buñuel had said about it at some point... Um, no idea or image that might lend itself to a rational explanation of any kind would be accepted. <laughs> so it's like, That's it is awesome. deliberately trying to be <laughs> irrational, you know? Yeah. Uh, nothing in the film symbolizes anything. The only method of investigation of the symbols would be perhaps psychoanalysis. So it's like, all the imagery in this movie is meant to sort of evoke something in whoever's watching it but isn't necessarily, it doesn't actually mean anything beyond just like, this is a weird thing. What does right. that say to you? You know? It's evocative. It gives you feelings. Uh, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's hard to say that it's actually like saying much about the exact content of it. Rather, mm-hmm. it's saying stuff about uh, the, the making of it and the existence of it, like, like a lot of more modern art does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I, I like that sort of approach to making anything. I mean, that's, sure. that's a very... Yeah. I mean, I I think, like, 
there are ways that this feels like an advance in film form because other more avant-garde stuff that we've seen before has been a little more literal. Uh, Mm -hmm. Like if you look at either like, like literal, like life and death of a Hollywood extra, right. Mm -hmm. Or about a very specific thing. Right. But like, and it uses some avant-garde stuff to tell a story that is an actual story or the other kind of thing that we've seen is just like form and shape and color. Right. Right, Like Opus, the Opus movies. Yeah. And this is, this is making deliberately like effects driven abstract imagery out of real stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it's, it's not like representational so much. Yeah. Uh, or if it is representational, it's representing nonsense. <laughs> yeah. But I, I like the idea of just, like, filming a bunch of nonsense and then sort of, like, inviting the viewer to sort of, like, make sure. sense of it almost. Yeah. I think yeah. that's a cool idea. Yeah. Um, some people might disagree with me on that, but I don't know. I, I'm i excited by that idea. But, yeah, lo- like, lots of... Uh, I guess the, the main through line of this is just, like, gore and... Uh, <laughs> And body horror, almost. It is kind of a body horror movie, yeah, for sure. That the there, ants coming out of the hands and the yeah, ant hands. There's like just a random like disembodied hand on the ground or foot. Mm-hmm. Um, felt like the beginning of Blue Velvet in that way. Uh, yeah, there are pianos with dead cows inside, like grand mm-hmm. pianos with dead cows inside of them. Uh, there's a death's head moth. Uh, there is a, uh, a guy with his like mouth that has, uh, I don't know, like his skin is like over his mouth, a la, mm-hmm. uh, the beginning of the matrix. Uh, uh, what, what good is a phone call if you're unable to speak, etc. cetera. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just like lots of really like grody, <laughs> like yeah, un- yeah. unsettling stuff. It's funny you bring up Blue Velvet. I do. I'm sure David Lynch loves this movie. Oh, sure. Oh yeah, like it, it feels very Lynchian in that in that way. Believe it or not, Eraserhead is my most spiritual film. Explain <laughs> that. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> Probably what Salvador Dali or Louis Bunel would say if someone said, "Explain Anshian Andalou." No. <laughs> you do that. That's your job. Right. But I guess while talking about experimental film playing with form. We should move on to our first feature. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. It is Man with a Movie Camera. Indeed. Another Ziga Vertov film. Yeah. Uh, probably his most famous movie? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's the only one that I'd seen before. Uh, same. And, yeah. you know, when I saw this in college, I was not a fan. I no? uh, I watched it and I was like, this is just a guy messing around with a camera. This is boring and dumb. <laughs> and he thinks he's cool because he can just like turn the camera sideways or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I, I I didn't like it, but uh, and and I remember when I watched when I watched Kino Eye, I kind of felt a similar way. Like they're like I don't I don't get what's going on here. I'm getting the same vibes. Like this just seems kind of. Mm random and pointless uh you know it had some cool ideas but like as a thing it wasn't great but i quite enjoyed this this time on on reflection that's funny because i feel like when i saw this in college i really liked it i was like oh this is so cool look at all this crazy stuff they're doing 
And then watching it this time, I'm like, oh, all right, Ziga, we get it. Like, <laughs> cameras are eyes. Okay, we know. Um, Like, the, it, it was a little... I was less impressed with it rewatching it, I think. Hmm. That's interesting. I think, honestly, just because of, like, the greater context, I was like, a lot of... A lot of the ground that it covers, I feel like, has been covered with even other earlier Ziga Bertov films. Um, yeah. And, uh... But, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, it feels, uh, it's not it, bad. I like it. It. <laughs> it feels like a fully formed version of Kino Eye. And, you know, mm-hmm. it came out, what, six years later? Something like that? So, uh, it's, you know, there has been a lot of development in style since then and form but Mm -hmm. like i think it's almost this kind of you know what we hear about a lot and what we've sort of seen uh as we started watching some talkies is that having a microphone in the scene or in in the uh you know in the setup Mm -hmm. uh necessitated less adventurous camera movement as as camera movement was getting more adventurous especially with these german and russian movies and yeah. that just kind of had to all come to a grinding halt as soon as they started introducing sound where you had to have like microphones in very particular areas and you had to have people standing in very particular mm-hmm. ways and so this kind of feels like a like a swan song of the kind of adventurous camera movement that uh silent movies could do that mm-hmm. sound movies could not and also just like the adventurous camera movement not even just for technical reasons but but when you have sound, there is stuff that you there. There's like a literalism to the world that you are kind of a little more bound to than mm-hmm. you are without sound, where you can play with space, right. and time, and that kind of thing. It is almost like without having sound, there's a certain remove you have from the reality of the movie. Like it's yeah. already a little bit surreal and a little bit sort of different from reality in that way. Mm -hmm. And I think that does kind of give more creative license to like try weirder things with the camera or the editing or sort of give it a bit more of a, um, this sort of heightened reality to it. Um, that I think as we'll talk about later is, is kind of pulled away a bit in the early sound movies. Yeah. But yeah, so I think like as in its place in, uh, you know, in the era of silent film as this kind of almost, you know, there are, there are others, but it's like, it's almost like the final film of the silent era in, in some ways. Hmm. And so it's getting at a lot of the things that make silent film unique. And I think it does have some new ideas, even if it does maybe mm-hmm. uh, hit you over the head with them a, a little, a little bit. <laughs> uh so yeah, I liked it. <laughs> yeah, I I think I think it's probably the best of these sort of like Soviet montage silent documentaries. Um, it does feel kind of like the culmination of of that like specific subgenre. Um, it does still feel kind of showy, and it doesn't. I don't necessarily know what point it's trying to make, other than like, look at this, it's cool. <laughs> Look at all the stuff you can do with a camera. Yeah, that's that's so interesting <laughs> that our our perspectives swapped in opposite directions. Uh, yeah, 
Because that, that's the exact kind of cynicism that I had <laughs> when I watched it in college. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't necessarily feel cynical about it. It just is like... I think having seen a lot more uh, stuff from this time period, like having seen a lot more of the... Um, like Murnau movies and and uh, Fritz Lang stuff, and you know, it's it's just like I've seen a lot of the the technique from this applied in other ways in other films, and so it's a, it's a little bit I'm a little bit less like whoa they were really trying some crazy stuff in the twenties, and now I'm a bit more just sort of like yeah you know this was around, <laughs> yeah though. I think like another another aspect of that kind of contextualizes it to me is this just like general celebration of cinema. This, yeah. This movie, not like in the making, in the exhibiting, in what's special about it, all this kind of thing. So this this movie starts with a movie theater uh, that has not opened yet. And in like stop motion, or it's not stop motion, I don't think. It might be, maybe they're being pulled on strings or something, mm-hmm. but like in anticipation of an of an audience the movie theater seats kind of fold down welcoming your butt into them <laughs> and uh the, so the first part of this movie kind of like before it even says part 1 i think it's kind of like a almost like a prologue mm-hmm. um is making you aware that you're in a theater by uh showing the the kind of building anticipation if we're gonna watch something isn't it yeah. so exciting you know it's, it feels like one of those like like the amc nicole kidman movie intro where it's just like <laughs> get ready aren't movies great here we go uh yeah yeah true yep <laughs> um but uh it's this so, is the, so... the regal first look of 1929 <laughs> uh you're not wrong uh, but I don't know. I think that there's there's maybe I mean because it's coming from a Soviet, it, it is less <laughs> of a commercial, uh, you know, commercial like mm-hmm. isn't it great to go and spend money at AMC kind of yeah. thing, and more of a just like I love movies. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it's a really drawn out sequence of just this like building like anticipation, anticipation uh, of like the the entire orchestra is set up for the for the uh soundtrack and they're all holding with their you know violin mm-hmm. bows right above the strings um it goes to the projection booth representation and <laughs> uh you see the projectionist uh, uh threading up the movie and getting it all prepared he is uh, a really cool kind of detail is that he it's a carbon arc projector which was the only kind of projector back then mm-hmm. uh which is making an arc of like electricity in between two carbon rods, and you see the pro- the projectionist like adjusting the the uh, uh, the the kind of like angle and and mm. uh, distance between the rods, which was like part of the process. I've never actually used a carbon arc projector, but that was what they what they used until they had these super bright xenon bulbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was cool as a projectionist seeing that process. Uh, and the moment that the movie wakes up is the moment that the carbon or, or that the, the, the electricity arcs between the two carbons. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, movies are on now. You know, yeah. that's it's, it feels good. <laughs> I liked it. Maybe a little corny, but I, I liked it. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I feel like this was like less wildly experimental than I remember it being. Yeah. Because I've yeah. seen more like I've seen Berlin Symphony of a Great City now and I've like um the there's definitely a lot of stuff that really stuck with me the first time I saw it that is still very cool. Like a lot of the uh kind of like multiple explosure stuff towards the end. Um there's that great shot where there's like two shots of a building that are both like rotating simultaneously so it looks like the building is like folding in on itself yeah yeah um really cool um and there's just and there's like a stop motion thing of like a tripod doing a dance it's a cute little tripod Um, yeah yeah um there and there's a lot of as like with some of the other similar movies that we've watched like cutting between things to sort of create a comparison or a contrast between them Mm-hmm. A lot of sort of like showing people in motion and then cutting to different types of machinery to kind of draw parallels there. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, it's 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 good. Yeah, um, I, I feel like I'm. I don't want to be too down on it. Like it's it's a it's a good and cool movie. It's it's very much in the vein of city symphonies, even though this is was filmed in a number of different cities. I believe mm-hmm. it's less of a tribute to. But but it's structured in a similar way, yeah. Uh, where it's kind of like the beginning of the day when things are about to wake yeah. up, and then uh, you know industry and what people are doing, and uh, yeah. hustle and bustle, and then there, nightlife. There is a lot of cool footage of, uh, you know, a man with a movie camera, just like yeah. that is always kind of cool to see of like people operating hand cranked cameras and like trying to get into these weird, precarious, sometimes kind of situations. It reminded me of The Cameraman. Mm-hmm. It, like, this is like the documentary version of the Buster Keaton movie, The Cameraman. But it's almost. also, it's also like meta in a way that The Cameraman even isn't, because The Cameraman is just about a guy who is shooting film. And mm-hmm. this is about the guy who is shooting the film that you're watching, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, there are times where you'll see a really kind of, you know, crazy shot. And then the next shot that you see is a pulled back shot of the camera guy getting that shot. Mm-hmm. Uh, like where he's kind of in between two cars or he's like burrowed under the ground looking at a, <laughs> looking at a train or something. Yeah. Um, or so, you see him uh, in like shrunk down on top of a camera. <laughs> right. Or, yeah. or blown up super big and he's on top of a city. Which, yeah, I guess that's some of the most famous stuff from this movie are these sort of mm-hmm. effect shots of, like, the the cameraman mounting the mountain of, uh, like, scaling the yeah. mountain of a, of a big camera. And it's like, eh, it's kind of cool, I guess, but I just don't yeah. really see. Yeah, it's a little, <laughs> little, little, little silly. Uh, I guess another thing in, in line with, you know, making you aware that you're watching the movie that you're watching is mm-hmm. there is a point where... You know, it's in the middle of the city symphony stuff, and then the frame just freezes, and you look mm. at a bunch of a bunch of frames of things that you have been looking at, but with no motion, just a static frame, and then it pulls out to reveal the editor working on the movie. Yeah, which which is really cool. I think it I, is I very like cool. that. <laughs> and as like we've seen a lot of depictions of people filming movies in movies already, but I feel like this is one of the first times I've seen, like, the editing process depicted on film. Yeah, and it was, cool. it was really interesting, too, like, seeing yeah. how she was uh, 
like cutting up the different segments and labeling them based mm-hmm. on like the kind of thing. It made me think about how logistically complex it has to be to make a movie like this. Yeah, yeah. And it's like now we just have like, you know, a folder and an editing software, you know, you get your bins. And like back then it was like, no, they were literal, like you had to hang up each strip of film and like label it and keep track of it all. And um, yeah, I almost, I, I feel like I just missed the boat on that. Like I, I started mm-hmm. like going to film school and like making movies like right around the same, uh, right, like just after that was getting phased out. Oh man! <laughs> um, so I, I've never I've never edited on film before. And that's I thought like, you made a sixteen dang. millimeter movie. I did, but I I did all the editing uh, digitally. Oh no! <laughs> so I've shot on film a bunch, but I've never uh, I've never edited with it. It's got yeah. It's got to be like a whole process, a whole a whole thing with glue and scissors and stuff. Yeah, yeah. But like I don't know I I want to do that. That sounds fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um. um yeah, there's, like, specific stuff in this that stuck out to me that was fun. I don't know if it's worth, like, mentioning all of it. There's, like... Uh, there's, like... There's a bit showing uh, someone doing magic tricks, and it cuts to, like, a bunch of kids' faces. And one of the kids' faces is hilarious. It's just, like... his He's so, like... Just confused and amazed at what he's seeing, but it's, he's just like, "What even is happening?" It's like breaking his brain, <laughs> and it's really, it's really fun. I'm glad say. you explained that because you made the face, and then I'm like, "Glenn, we're we're doing a podcast yeah, this right is now." It's <laughs> an audio medium. Um, there's a bit where a woman is like at a, a shooting range, like for target practice, and she's shooting like Nazi targets. Like, with swastikas on them. Like, people adorned with swastikas. And I was like, yeah. even in 29, when, like, that was not... They didn't control an entire country yet. The Soviets were already like, fuck the Nazis, we hate them. Yeah, which, you know, true, based. Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> I, I, uh... Yeah, I was, I was also surprised to see that. Like, uh... Uh... Because you hear so much about nazi sympathizers from this time right Mm -hmm. a bunch of americans who are like those nazis are really onto something you know and uh yeah at at least like ziga vertov and that woman who are (laughs) are in in this movie uh they um they they understand what's up they understand the nazis are bad dudes fascists Yeah. yeah Uh, yeah, a lot of, like, really fun little details in this movie. It's not too long. It's, uh, it's an hour and nine minutes, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. so, it, and it's got just a bunch of really, like, interesting stuff in it. I, mm-hmm. I like it, I like it quite a bit. Yeah, cool movie. Uh, another cool movie that came out this year. <laughs> uh-huh. Um, that also was made in Europe, I guess is the segue. Okay. Is... Fritz Lang's Woman in the Moon, Frau im Mond. This movie reminded me of two things, and it I feel like it's it's like place in history almost is really interesting, because it reminded me a lot of the Melies movie, Trip to the Moon. For sure. Because um, it has a very similar, just like basic plot structure. It's about people who go to the moon. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is wild to me how much closer this movie gets gets the depiction of going to the moon to the actual moon landing. Sure, yeah. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that, like, the scientific advisor on this movie helped 
like is directly or very slightly indirectly responsible for like achieving the actual moon landing. He's one of those uh one of those Nazi scientists that yeah. I don't know if was he actually involved in NASA. I know he was involved in the V2 project, but uh, right. He was uh, involved in NASA. I'm not sure if he was involved in the actual like Saturn rocket program that ended up actually taking people to the moon. Mm-hmm. But Werner von Braun was, and he was a student of the guy who worked on this movie. Yeah, um, and Herman yeah, he, Oberth. I don't was know the if this guy was a, was specifically a Nazi at the time. No, the he Nazis was. Were, oh, he was. I don't know if he was when this movie was made, but he certainly yeah. was later. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah right. I, that's what I was saying. Yeah, I'm not sure if he yeah. was a Nazi actively in 1929, but he certainly yeah. was in the 30s and 40s. Yeah, and 50s. Like he continued to be until death. Like he was he he didn't he did not show remorse for his affiliations at all. <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> he stuck he stuck by it. Um, but we can thank him for uh, maybe one of the coolest sequences of of any movie that I've seen so far. The launch sequence in this movie is so good. Yeah. I mean, it's like, and it is kind of shockingly accurate to how actual rocket launches in like the sixties and seventies look and are just how they function and things like that. Like this movie gets the science of actually taking people to the moon really, I kind of remarkably accurately well except for a few things <laughs> uh, with a few key differences and that actual astronauts unfortunately don't wear chunky cardigans and safari jackets <laughs> chunky cardigans but um you know this is a this is a fantasy well they found out that uh the mo- you could breathe on the moon so they decided to dress casual just dress, yeah. dress a little yeah. warm they, casual. they they do bring a sort of like diving suit I sort of like old timey like brass and rubber uh, pressure suit yeah. that is quickly abandoned because they're like, oh no, there's the atmosphere here. We can breathe. It's fine. Well, yeah, the, or at least like the you know they light some matches and they're like, yeah, looks like oxygen. there's oxygen. We yeah. haven't analyzed the the air that well, but at least there's <laughs> oxygen. Uh, what could go wrong? I guess if we back up a little bit, I th- this movie, this movie's all about the moon. And I, like, the first, like, 40 minutes of this movie are pretty boring, I think. I mean, the rocket does not launch until over uh, over 90 minutes into the movie. Cause I is checked. it that long? Yeah. Oh it is God. over halfway through do, does the rocket even launch. So There's a bunch of stuff that happens on Earth that, I, that you could have done in 10, 15 minutes. Yeah. This and- movie's three hours long, and it absolutely did not need to be. Yeah, I like it's it's I felt so conflicted about this movie because the launch sequence in this movie is one of the coolest things that I have seen in any silent film. It is so well done. It's so tense. It's it's so well uh it's so like realistic and it it, it like just gives you the sense of awe and and excitement and th- the hour and a half apparently <laughs> leading up there's a whole movie that's just about some like poorly plotted kind of business intrigue <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah this movie feels like it has a lot especially the first half feels very reminiscent of some stuff from spies which was yeah. 
the last Fritz Long movie. Also, this movie is also written by um, Thea Van Harbo. Um, there's a lot of a lot of the same cast as Spies, mm-hmm. um, including Willie uh, Fritz. Yeah, uh, or Wally Wally Fritz Fritsch. Not sure how to say it properly. <laughs> a thing that I will never say on the show ever again. <laughs> Uh, but there's sort of our lead character, Wolf Helius, which is a crazy name. Wait, that's a Melier's ass name. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, oh, so the movie opens with a quote that says, uh, never does not exist in the human mind, only not yet. Which is, you know, kind of a, a good quote to start things off with. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Helius is friends with uh, George Man- Manfelt who is a sort of disgraced astronomy professor um, who was disgraced because he had a theory that there was gold on the moon. Yeah. And the sort of, uh, you know, council of old scientist dudes, um, you know, threw him out. And now he's they, this like, they disgraced... laugh him out of the room as councils yeah. of old scientists are wont to do. Yeah. <laughs> and so now he's like throwing people out of, at, down the stairs out of his apartment calling them you skunk <laughs> and uh but so helius and and professor manfield have a sort of like marty mcfly doc brown relationship almost that makes sense yeah i can see that um and uh they're sort of like uh helius is i guess an industrialist and he's kind of making plans to build a rocket to go to the moon but there's this he secretive believes yeah, there's this, like, secretive cabal of, like, wealthy people uh, who try- are trying to control all the wealth of the world. And they sit in a room and smoke cigars and plot to go to the moon um, and say things like, I want the riches of the moon to fall into the hands of businessmen, not those dreamers and idealists. <laughs> and so they send... How can uh, you not be on board with that? They send... They're like henchmen played by Fritz Rasp. That's his real name. Um, uh, who's this? Yeah, very kind of like James Bond villain esque guy. He's, um, he's both a master of disguise, but when he's out of disguise, he looks like Hitler. Yes, <laughs> which I feels maybe intentional. It had me like looking up like what did Hitler look like in the in 1929? Like, oh, about the same. Yeah. <laughs> this yeah. guy this guy looked like uh, the villain of the movie looks like Hitler, which may not be yeah. uh, an accident. I mean right, cuz it is like partially it's like well, that might have just been like a popular look in Germany in the 20s, I don't know. <laughs> but then also it's like Fritz Lang anyway was, you know, pretty staunchly anti-fascist. So he might have been already sort of like putting in some kind of like trying to kind of subvert the like iconography of of that group already. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as I know, the Nazis were more of a kind of like paramilitary gang almost in the late 20s. Hmm. Uh, they weren't really a sort of like super political group so much as they were like a political party that was fond of like causing violence and attacking people and breaking buildings and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I don't know how pointed that is, but that's, it. it, it is like certainly to contemporary eyes. It's like, well, <laughs> I wonder who the villain of this movie is. 
Um, uh, but this this group of this cabal, they want to. They've heard about the potential gold on the moon, and they want to get in on the. They want to slice that pie. Yeah, uh, slice that moon gold. <laughs> they want some of that cheese. Uh, <laughs> so basically, they end up like threatening Helios. And saying, mm-hmm. like, we're going to steal and destroy all of your stuff and blow up your rocket if you don't allow us to participate in, mm-hmm. in your your yeah. moon expedition. Yeah. Which, the, the setup of this movie reminded me a lot of The Lost World. And that it has a kind of, like, crackpot professor who has this wild idea of, like, a lost place that he wants to yeah. go to. Yeah. And he is proven correct. Um... Although he but, does like he is serving like prospector and uh and right. then he's looking he, for gold on the moon. <laughs> that's what I mean. He starts as the sort of like crockpot mad scientist character in the beginning and he over the course of the movie like shifts into being the sort of like crazy gold, prospector. Gold. <laughs> literally yelling gold 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 gold. Um yeah. So it's like he's two archetypes m- smashed together. Um Just fun. Yeah. I think that, like, this kind of stuff that's building up, like, the justification and, and kind of, Im- like, stakes of the moon mission, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as we were saying, I think a lot of it is overlong and kind of pointless and not super well done. Yeah. I think that, like, what it is doing that's interesting is talking about like the kind of financial incentives going on with like exploration and, Mm -hmm. uh, how, you know, how money can corrupt, you know, pure scientific, you know, exploration and, and, and discovery, Mm -hmm. uh, Though they are going to the moon to get rich, it's just that some really yeah. some rich people who have a lot of power and willingness to murder uh, are are uh, already you know involved. I guess if you're if you're rich already, you're bad. If you want to get rich, that's neutral. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um. Yeah. There's there's like you said. There's a lot of intrigue in the first half of this thing that is not. Ultimately, it's like, we just want to see people go to the moon, you know? And it's like, this could have been set up, and it could have been just as sort of, like, you could have gotten the audience just as invested in half the time, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, But so, we finally get to sort of, like, the the planning and the, the, you know, the launch scene, which is pretty long. Like, it's... Yeah. It's a pretty involved scene in terms, like, there's a... The rocket is on this, like, giant like, conveyor belt that has to take it from a hangar out outside, which is a thing that is, like, fairly accurate to actual rockets. And they've got, like, this kind of, uh, this platform that is stabilizing the rocket up until mm-hmm. the moment that it launches, and then it kind of, like, drops the rocket into some water to, to uh, keep it upright, because mm-hmm. it's, too, it's too light to, uh, to stand upright on its own, uh, which also, you know, the, the the kind of like launch platforms is a is another thing that happens with real space mm-hmm. rockets. Um, they say it takes thirty six hours to get to the moon, which I think is pretty pretty generous in terms of <laughs> how fast uh, the rocket would have to be to actually get to the moon. I didn't look it up how long it takes to actually get to the moon, but it's more than that. I know it's that like much. Three days or so, right? Yeah. Uh, this. 
uh, movie also is apparently the first um, the first known or documented uh, instance of a countdown to a mm. launch of of, mm-hmm. a, of a space rocket. Uh, yeah. Some say that it might have even been influential in uh, in the way that you know mm-hmm. shuttle launches have have gone. Uh, just in terms of like you count down from ten, you know. Yeah. And then you say blast off. <laughs> yeah. Another thing that I think this that I was I was surprised to see in this movie is it shows uh G forces and people yeah. like getting pushed down as the rocket launches. Yeah, one of the great like tension building elements in this launch sequence is how there are two gauges that that they call your attention to, which one gauge is how fast they need to go to break earth's gravity and uh and get on the right like the the right course toward the moon mm-hmm. and they need to bi- watch that gauge build up to a certain speed and then and then cut the cut it so that they can coast the rest of the way mm-hmm. and then they have another gauge which is how much g forces they are experiencing up until this line where they die <laughs> uh, <laughs> Which and, and so watching the interplay between those two gauges, it like adds so much tension to the scene. It's great. Yeah, there's a lot of like it's like if they can't slow down, they'll like shoot off into space and die. They they explain that there was a previous like expedition that tried to go to the moon, but they were lost, and like just you know no one ever knows what happened to them. Um, and um, yeah, it's like it's uh. It's the whole launch sequence is very is a, I think a really good example of like building tension mm-hmm. and sort of like setting up what could go wrong and so you're sort of like ooh yeah I hope they don't get crushed by the G forces yeah you're um, watching all of them lose consciousness yeah. as they uh, as they approach the death zone <laughs> yeah um, another thing that it it sort of foresees is that it's like a multi-stage rocket so like as it gets further away from earth like it breaks like you know there's like all right we jettison the back half now and then it's like um so that's a a cool thing i think that the um they show a sort of diagram of like earth's gravity and the moon's gravity and there's like a little a very short space in between where there's (laughs) no gravity which is like in the in the movie in the movie is like twenty minutes, whereas you know it's days in real life. Where it's just like no, once you're past Earth's gravity, or once you're past Earth's atmosphere, like you're weightless. And also, when you're on the moon, there's a little bit of gravity, but not nearly as much. Um, but still, it's like this movie shows weightlessness in space, which is yeah. not a thing that I have seen in, in any movie before this. And it looks good, I think, for the most part. Yeah. Yeah, it's like not, it's like recognizable as like, yeah, they're in space. They need to like hold on to stuff to move around. I do think it's funny that they show that there's like a bunch of straps on the ceiling and on the floor that they like put their feet in to walk around. And it's like, yeah, I think it's funny that that's how they solved it in this movie. Whereas now we're just like, no, you just float around and like push off the walls. Like that's way easier to do. <laughs> we got to keep our sense of normalcy in space. Yeah. Um, I think the, probably the best little detail about the weightlessness is when they're trying to pour some uh pour a drink in space mm-hmm. and uh and it's just not pouring out of the bottle and so they have to sling it out of the bottle into the air 
uh, and then it's got some special effects bubbles a la wings uh, yeah, of, yeah. of the uh, of, of the liquid <laughs> in the air. Yeah, so it's still very, like, uh, I guess, you know. And yeah, they are still wearing, like, you know, ties and, like, jackets in space. <laughs> but um, it is surprising just, like, a few decades after Trip to the Moon, how much closer this is to the actual, what actual space travel is. Yeah. Um, and it's like, I mean, this is exactly 40 years before the actual moon landing, which is like not that long of a time, I feel like. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think like looking back at the Earth, they like look back at it and it's like, yeah, that's that's what it looks like in pictures. It's like, beautiful too. Like these yeah. those shots of looking back at the Earth and then you see as they're coming near the moon, you see the, the, the landscape of the moon rushing by on the bottom of the mm-hmm. screen and yeah. then the earth setting along yeah. a, like across from the moon it's so good yeah. very cool um there's a bunch of plot stuff in this movie that i don't know how much we want to talk about it's very kind of classical silent movie it's a love plot triangle in space Ooh. i think it's very funny that Fritz Lang and Thea von Harbo keep having these like love triangle plots in their movies because that's literally like their relationship. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they were part of a love triangle. And yeah, there's like, so there's the Helios and there's, uh, um, uh, Frida is, is the girl that goes with them. And there's Hans is like the other guy that works. Frida and Hans both work for Helios and they're engaged, but Helios is upset about it. Once they get into space, Hans is like, we're all gonna die! We're never gonna see Earth again. He succumbs to space um, madness, which yeah, we've seen in madness. other... We've seen, uh, in Himmelskibbit, we, we right. got some space madness as well. <laughs> some yeah. some kind of backstabbing once on the, the spaceship. So yeah, when, once they get to the moon, there's like a little bit of exploration going on. They, they discover that there's breathable air. Um... The professor goes off to find gold, which he does, but then he gets chased by Turner, who's the spy who gets sent by the Cabal on the moon mission. There's there's a point where Turner is... Everybody's passed out from the G-forces, and they're like, is he dead? Like, does that... Uh, <laughs> yeah. are we, have we lucked out that he just died? <laughs> um, uh, one other element is that also that there's a, a, a scamp who stows away on the oh, of course the yeah there's an a, 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 a an urchin child <laughs> who stows away in the spaceship uh which is great i love that yeah um but so the professor gets chased by turner and he you know he's gone gold crazy he's turned into a prospector on the moon and he falls down a a, a chasm a crevasse of sorts um and dies and so then uh, they go out looking for him and, and uh, Turner tries to kind of like take a bunch of gold and take over the ship. But uh, uh, Frida locks him out of the ship with her arm. She's like barricaded the door. Um, and Helios comes back and has a fight. And there's a moon fight. And uh, Hans shoots Turner. And it, with like with his dying breath, Turner admits that nobody loves him which is why he's a bad guy. Um, but in the gunfight, 
they uh, one of the stray bullets has ruptured the air canister. So now they only have half the amount of oxygen that they need to return to Earth. So some even with all the people that have died already, Hans and Helios draw straws for who has to stay behind on the moon because they don't have enough air to get back. Mm-hmm. And they do best two out of three. And Hans pulls the sword straw two out of three times and uh, doesn't take it well. <laughs> um. So my, then Helios kind of decides... going to be back on Earth, and I have to stay yeah, here. Yeah. So Helios decides he's going to stay behind instead. Um, and there's sort of a tearful goodbye. Uh, and Helios sort of, like, walks alone into the wilder- the lunar wilderness. But then the movie ends on Frida stayed behind, too. And so they are now the only two living people on the moon. But at least they have each other. She becomes the woman in the moon, I suppose. Yeah, I was kind of expecting, like, that they'd find an alien who would be the woman yeah. in the moon. No aliens. Yeah, I guess I guess she's just kind of flip-flops on the love triangle situation. She's like, my husband went crazy, uh, yeah. and and he's he's acting a fool, so I'm going to stay <laughs> on the moon with you, Helios. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Staying on the desolate moon with you is preferable to spending the rest of my life with this clown. <laughs> spending the next 36 hours on a... Uh, <laughs> On a on a spaceship with this guy, yeah. so yeah, not not a perfect film, but a lot. There's a lot of fun, cool stuff in it. Yeah, there's yeah a lot of good in it, and a lot mm-hmm. of less good in it. Yeah, as well. Uh, another movie from Germany, indeed, is Pandora's Box, directed by G.W. Pabst, George Wilhelm Pabst, the first. Thing we've covered from him, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Th- this movie is kind of one of the big hitters of the silent era. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a pretty famous movie, especially for uh, uh, what's her name, the, uh, the Louise main actor, Brooks. Louise Brooks's performance as Lulu, the yeah. main character in this movie. It's kind of the big Louise Brooks movie. Yeah, like it's her kind of big lead role in in she is the lead role in a couple things, but this is kind of like. Her biggest, most famous movie. Mm-hmm. And this is a very famous movie and very well respected. And I think it sucks. I, yeah. I, I don't like I, this movie. <laughs> I am like confused by how I feel about this. Like, I think there's a lot of good stuff in this movie and like a lot of things that I like respect or like about it. But it, it's so it's very weird. What it's trying to say is weird. Uh, how it handles its character arcs and like how the characters are represented is weird. There's like things in it where I'm like, this is almost very good, but there's something that's holding it back. And I'm, I'm, I, I haven't really been able to fully synthesize what it is about this movie that sort of like is off putting. I mean, we, you know, we've talked about how once plot and style got going enough in movies that they're kind of developed this sort of, uh, intangible thing that it's just like this works and this doesn't mm-hmm. work right and it's the kind of thing that you can't define but like once stuff became like storytelling became complex enough you started seeing these kind of like ineffable ways that movies work or don't work and i think this mm-hmm. one just doesn't work in that way i feel like the i don't i don't buy any of the characters i don't buy any of their decisions or like like I don't get emotionally invested in them. Mm. Uh, I don't think that the plotting is very well told at all. Uh, and I think that this movie is just like sadistic 
for for no reason. Uh, it's 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 a slog to watch uh, it because is, yeah. uh, it it is just cruelty with no reason. <laughs> mm. It feels like a D.W. Griffith movie uh, in terms of like how much it like fetishizes like misery. dark stuff happening, yeah, and misery, but like without. Without even Griffith's kind of like uh, picadillos that that <laughs> that make that make his films kind of unique, uh, be it racism or just like his uh, various obsessions and 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 stuff, like this movie just feels like a D.W. Griffith movie with no soul. Mm. Yeah, damn. Um, I do think Louise Brooks is good in this movie. She is very good. No, I don't necessarily know if her character is written well, but I think her performance is very good, and I think you can you can tell you can her like charisma comes across very well in this movie, and I think Louise Brooks, I get the sense had a pretty good understanding of how film performance works or -hmm. doesn't work. Mm -hmm. Um, like I think this is a better film performance that i'm used to seeing from silent film yeah she's great um she's great yeah uh louise brooks is for those who don't know is kind of like the iconic like 1920s like bob haircut woman like she wasn't the first one to have that haircut but it's kind of like she's kind of the reason why it's like looks like so iconically associated with the 1920s hmm. um she was American, but was, like, a big part of, like, the 1920s showbiz party scene and left Hollywood for Germany in 1928 because she was like, I'm sick of this. She wasn't getting good parts, and she didn't feel like she was being respected in Hollywood. Yeah. And said later that as soon as she went to Germany, she felt like she had so much more respect than in Hollywood. Um, although I think she went back to Hollywood pretty soon after in, like, 29 or 30, so... Yeah, um, in in going to Germany, she broke her contract with uh, Paramount, I believe, and mm. because she did that, they kind of like blacklisted her almost from from working uh, that much anymore. So it it became even more difficult for her in Hollywood after she came back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, w- how to summarize this movie? Um. This movie is about a lady who's so hot that it causes. Uh, <laughs> the, <laughs> the world the pe- break yeah people people want want her so bad that just chaos breaks out everywhere she is <laughs> yeah but i feel like this movie doesn't yeah it's like parts in during parts of the movie it feels like it's kind of like blaming her for that and other parts it feels like she is kind of being victimized by the people around her who are all sort of like trying to use her for their own ends yeah if 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 this movie has anything to say, even if it muddles it by the end, it's it's the way that like men can like see women see women as like sexual objects and pass them around like like footballs and and uh, treat them as like trophies and just not not as real people and and how being an attractive woman can put you in a bunch of like dangerous and awful situations with men. Mm-hmm. But then, yeah, there are points where the movie just kind of goes like, but it's your fault too, you know? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. I feel like, yeah, I think the the things in this movie that work the best are its kind of depictions of, like, selfishness 
and how like I feel like every character in this movie is selfish in some form and it, mm-hmm. it usually has some sort of karmic effect on them except for one character who is maybe the worst person in the whole movie which is Lulu's father <laughs> who is just a huge piece of shit and doesn't really ever get a comeuppance for it. He's very supportive but he is a complete scumbag. <laughs> He's a complete scumbag that is really only using his daughter in order to like further his own like addiction for like booze and drugs and life. Pudding. Pudding, yeah. Um Yeah, this movie feels very critical of showbiz in that sense of like showbiz will eat you up and spit you out kind of. Um Yeah, it's like I feel like this movie has things to say, but it doesn't really do a great job of saying them almost. Yeah. And like at times feels like it's actively like undercutting itself. Yeah. Um it's basically like uh it's broken up into something like eight acts and uh every act is basically uh, you're in a scenario with Lulu uh and then something terrible happens that causes them to have to go somewhere else and then <laughs> right. and then that's the next act and repeat and it the gets, process and it gets worse each time. Yes, yeah, they get more destitute and and horrified every time. Yeah. It starts out where Lulu is, like, the mistress of a newspaper publisher who feels kind of maybe like a thinly veiled analog for uh, William Randolph Hearst. Oh, I didn't think of that, yeah. Um, and and um, Louise Brooks was... Uh, Marion Davies, kind of. Niece, I believe, yeah. She, uh, uh, she was involved with William Randolph Hearst and actually, like, had a... Uh, another kind of real life horrific thing is that she had a fling with I no no she had a fling with Marion Davies's niece, uh, and when Hearst found out she was a lesbian, uh, the the niece, he had her committed to a mental institution where she jumped off the roof. Uh, right. So, yeah. yeah. So I mean, this you know I'm sure that that played into Louis Brooks's performance in this movie. Like she probably had a lot of real life things to like draw upon kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, she ends up being framed for uh, the, the murder of the newspaper publisher because he, the newspaper publisher tries to get her to shoot herself. And there's a, uh, you know, he gets shot instead. He says, kill yourself so that you don't drive me to murder as well. Yeah. You know, a normal thing to say to a person. <laughs> um, there's a bit early on where she says, the only way you're going to get rid of me is you'll have to kill me. And I'm like, never say that to someone that you were sleeping <laughs> with for their money. <laughs> um, but yeah, there's like a lot of this showbiz stuff early on where like she is kind of trying to like use this connection to the newspaper guy to like further her career but she's also like involved with other people at the same time the newspaper publisher guy is trying to marry this other woman but then that gets ruined um so he's like fine i'll marry you instead he gets shot in the sort of like scuffle that they have and lulu is put on trial for murder but then her dad uh she and uh, 
the other guy that is around her dad that he just kind of <laughs> pals around with pull the fire alarm and they escape to places unknown. I kind of assume Morocco to a sort of casino boat place. Yeah, on the way, they're, like, on a train, and a guy spots her from the newspaper, and he threatens to turn her in. It's just, like, yeah. all of this, like, all this, like, like once she is on the lam, there are all of these people that are holding this threat over her head mm-hmm. of, uh, I will turn you in for money. Yeah. And so, you have to do what I tell you to do, up to and including, like, I'm going to sell you to a brothel. Yeah. Basically, it gets worse and worse and worse until they're living, like, destitute in London. And so they all have no money. Shigolsh is, like, spending all their money on booze instead of food. And so Lulu is turning to prostitution to get money for food. But unfortunately, the first person that she picks up off the street is a serial killer. Maybe the Avenger from the movie The Lodger. Yeah, I mean, uh, who Wikipedia, and on Wikipedia, it straight up says that he's Jack the Ripper. Which doesn't which, make sense, because Jack the Ripper wasn't murdering people in the 20s. It was way I too mean, late for that. Right. I mean, I guess, I was like, if it's Jack the Ripper, does that mean this, like, set 40 years earlier no, or something? No, I think that's just or? Wikipedia being silly. Um, <laughs> it's a clearly Jack the Ripper-inspired, you know, London yeah. murderer of prostitutes in the yeah. foggy night. Um, which is also what the lodger is inspired by. Um, and yeah, it just, it ends on such a dour, (laughs) sad note where like she gets murdered and it like barely even spends any time to like reckon with that or like what, you know, it's like, it happens off screen. Um, and so yeah, it definitely left kind of a bad taste in my mouth. Yeah. This, yeah, there's no point to this movie. (laughs) (laughs) There's a, a definitely a degree of sort of like kind of victim blaming of like Lulu is this like free spirited, like sexually liberated woman mm-hmm. who's like trying to live her best life. But she's, she's a kind of pixie dream girl. But she's kind of she's doing it by like sort of getting involved with all these like really uh, selfish, awful people. And so that ends up being kind of her downfall i guess I, it feels thematically a little confused and maybe that's some something to do with like kind of the just the the, sh- the different perspective that i have as a contemporary person versus late 1920s germany because that's something that i feel like is a through line through a lot of the movies that we watched for this year is this like very weird <laughs> view of like romantic and sexual relationships that feels simultaneously like it's trying to kind of celebrate a degree of of like liberation but it's also like Mm -hmm. so uh like judgmental i mean you could compare it with like slasher movies in the 80s you know where it's like it wants to have its cake and eat it too with like you know all of this all of these like liberated people but then they must be punished by jason you know right which i guess is that i think applies to this movie the most i feel like with some of the other ones it's more just like oh this movie has dog shit politics and it's in its depiction of humans. Yeah. Um, maybe that's a good segue to our next movie. Yeah. Speaking of a bunch of uh, a miserable showbiz assholes being mean to each other. <laughs> um, the Broadway melody, <laughs> the Broadway melody, the Broadway the, melody, uh, MGM's first all talking picture. 
all talking, all singing, all dancing, first Sound Academy Award Best Picture winner, often said online as the worst Best Picture winner. (laughs) I haven't seen them all, but boy howdy, this one makes a case for it, because this movie is terrible. (laughs) Um, Yeah, this movie's real bad. Um, It is a similarly kind of like showbiz... Well, this movie's billed as a comedy, and it is... I don't think it's ever funny. No. Um, and it's, it is it is fairly exemplary of... Um, I mean, this is our first episode talking about all talking pictures, right? Like, we've really only covered the jazz singer, which is, like, barely a talkie, right? Yeah. It has, like, three scenes of talking in it. Yeah. And so this movie is, like, illustrative in the challenges that early talkies faced. Yeah. In this many this ways. movie has like all of the pitfalls of early talkies. <laughs> um, I mean, I thought that I had after watching this movie, and probably the next movie we'll talk about is talkies were a mistake. <laughs> like <laughs> there was such a significant shift between just the overall like language of the filmmaking of all the silent movies we've been watching and these early sound movies, where it's just like this they immediately feel so much worse, I think. Yeah, I mean, this is the case every time they make some kind of technological leap, though. Uh, mm-hmm. We've seen this time and time again, where it's like, when they start, when they go up to feature films, the the first movies are kind of bad, because they don't know how to fill all mm-hmm. that time properly, you know? Yeah. With every, like, kind of, yeah, major jump, it takes them a while to figure out how to do it. Yeah, yeah. And they certainly have not figured it out yet with this movie. <laughs> um, the, I guess the broad strokes of this is it follows two sisters, the Mahoney sisters, Harriet, who goes by Hank and Queenie, who are like moving to New York to follow their showbiz dreams. And guess what? There's a love triangle. Yep. <laughs> um, and it's just a, a terrible one though, where it's just like, yeah, the only positive scenario to come out of possible positive scenario is that, the Mahoney sisters leave this asshole behind and, like, go off on their own again at the end. And that's not what happens at he all. He is so inexplicably shitty of a person. Terrible. I don't, he's, I he's, don't understand. He is mean to everyone he meets. He is incredibly <laughs> selfish and just a huge asshole and is bad at everything he does. Um, I don't understand why anyone in this movie puts up with him. But like he's supposed to be like the romantic lead. I don't think it. Yeah, like, there yeah. are parts. No, he's where not. The he's movie... not supposed to be. Like the filmmakers not intend for him to be this unlikable. You know, <laughs> even though he is. he is so awful. <laughs> he's the worst. Eddie Eddie Kearns is the name of the male lead of this movie and is uh, a terrible character. Mm-hmm. Um, one because he is terrible to the people around him but also just like he does not fulfill the function that he is meant to in this movie which is to be a like charming romantic lead (laughs) he's the least charming human being alive (laughs) so uh, the broad strokes of this movie yeah they're 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 two sisters who have a vaudeville act they're trying to bring it to broadway uh they kind of have a relationship with this guy eddie who has recently landed the kind of a, a big role, a big kind of main role in a Broadway review. And mm-hmm. he says that you will, uh, you know, he'll help them out 
by getting in the review and getting them jobs and everything. Yeah. I'll put in a good word. I'll get I'll get you I'll get you hooked up. <laughs> um And they say it yeah, the, by um, talking. Whoa. Yeah, whoa, talking. Um which is like well, we'll talk about that in a second. The 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 Broadway show that is depicted in this movie is the Zanfield Dollies, which is the worst thinly veiled <laughs> Zigfeld uh, Follies. Yeah. So it's like, Mr. Zanfield. And it's like, I wonder who that is supposed to be. <laughs> There's a few of those in this movie. There's also one of the kind of like villains of the movie is named Jacques Warner, which is very close to Jack Warner, <laughs> which feels very pointed from an MGM picture. But yeah, there's a lot of talking, a lot of singing in this movie. And a lot of dancing. N- none of it particularly good. Like... This isn't the worst offender of this, I think, but there are a lot of scenes that are just like, and now we're going to stop everything and someone's going to sing a song or someone's going to like play an instrument and we're going to look at this. And I think this movie kind of justifies it by it being a bad Broadway show. So a lot of yeah. the musical numbers are sort of uh, uh, diegetic. They're within the world of the film. The characters are actually like performing musical numbers to each other as part of a show. But then sometimes they are singing as if it's a musical, mm-hmm. and then there's non-diegetic music playing behind them as well. Yes. So it's sort of a mix of both. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I feel like I could spend this whole time just talking about what a jerk Eddie is in this movie. <laughs> um, that's like most of my notes are that. Um, everyone who works on this Broadway show seems to hate each other. Everyone is like... a. They're- literally about to murder each other there's a, one of the like tech guys throws a light <laughs> off a scaffolding at one of the actors and i'm like that would kill someone to throw this like massive metal light that then shatters onto the floor they're also like snippy and catty and mean to each other at all moments like every moment of this movie is just like cattiness <laughs> yeah but then like i feel like the the overall impression isn't that like I don't feel like this movie is trying to posit that, like, Broadway shows are a terrible place to be. I think what it's trying to be is, like, like affably, like, mean, right? It's like, right, people, are, yeah. people are are mean, but you're having a fun time. It's like a, yeah, it's, it's endearing, but it certainly is not. Yeah, it is not remotely endearing. The, I, one thing that's kind of interesting about this movie is, like, it opens in a... Um, like a music studio for for musicians and it opens with this like overlapping cacophony of talking and music which <laughs> it's is such kind a of racket <laughs> right but it is kind of like hey we can have talking and music in our movies now let's have like eight people talking and singing in the first scene <laughs> all overlapping yeah i mean i i don't know if this movie ever really uses music or talking in a particularly interesting way it just has a lot no. of it which, which I mean, is unique, right? It ha- it's much more dialogue driven than mm-hmm. a silent movie could be. I believe there was a silent version of this, but mm. um, but also the talking isn't really doing that much. You know, they're not really saying stuff like this is a story that could have been done in a silent movie. Probably. Um, one thing with it, I I do think, like we were just saying before about like how it affects performance, is I think it it makes performance a little bit harder to do like it raises the bar having sound in your movie means that like when your actors talk they need to be able to deliver their dialogue in a believable fashion 
Yeah. Which I feel like this movie does not do very yeah. well. Yeah. At the beginning, when I was watching this, I thought, like, okay, like, it, you know, it's not naturalistic, certainly, but it's like a Broadway style overacting. And there's some of that. Like, this kind of, like, talking to a big crowd as if, hey, everybody, la da you know? Mm. But uh, my opinion went from. Uh, this is Broadway style overacting, and that's okay. To oh, this is actually bad acting. <laughs> yeah, this, no, this isn't. This isn't the sign of the times. This is just bad performance. Um, my favorite scene in this movie is uh, does not have very much dialogue in it. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Um, it's like one of the few moments of like actual pathos or emotion I felt in this entire thing is maybe like two thirds of the way through towards the end. So there's this love triangle between Eddie and the two sisters. Eddie is, like, initially involved with Hank, um, but is sort of, like, trying to seduce Queenie, like, behind her back the whole time. You know, a real charming, likable thing to do. Um, And eventually that, like, it comes out and Hank reveals that she's known that for, you know, months or whatever. Um, And she's, like, she accuses Eddie of being a coward for not chasing after her sister that he's leaving her for. Um, and so she, he storms out. He storms out and she just breaks down crying in her dressing room. And that was like the one moment of like performance that I really felt was like, yeah, just her life is in shambles, right? Like her boyfriend has left her for her younger sister and like everything that she's like hoped and dreamed for is like falling apart. Um, and she just like sits by herself and cries. And it, that I feel like was a, a, a genuinely good performance in that moment. Yeah. And um, after after Eddie leaves her, I think it's her uncle Jed, maybe, or or mm-hmm. even maybe it's Eddie. I don't remember who says she's a born trooper. Troopers have no home; they're just tramps. <laughs> so, like, basically, like, there's this whole thing of it's of it's just like Queenie is Queenie is the pretty one, and mm-hmm. a, and Hank is the one with business sense. They kind of look more or less the same to me, you yeah. know. <laughs> but like. Uh, like everyone wants the pretty one and she's like I know I'm not the pretty one. I'm I'm just destined to be a tramp the rest of my life. Right, uh, but the movie ends with her just like accepting that about herself and like she's like oh everyone says that I'm only good at this one thing so I'll just do that I guess. Yeah. I I hate the ending. The ending of this movie is awful and is like <laughs> just it is like the worst possible scenario I feel like. It's so I hate it. It like make, make, makes me angry. <laughs> Yeah, there's a uh, there's a point where it's talking about Hank, and then somebody says those guys those guys aren't gonna pay ten bucks to look at your face. <laughs> like it's Broadway. <laughs> horrible, horrible. Yeah. There's also a moment where uh, uh, Eddie starts a fight with Jacques um, over Queenie, and immediately gets his ass kicked and like thrown out of an apartment. Um, and he's like, oh, you don't want to, you don't want anything to do with me. I'm no good. And I'm like, you are correct, sir. That is the one true thing you have said this whole movie. <laughs> um, but so they end up getting married and moving to Long Island. And like Hank kind of starts her own traveling show with, uh, a new dancer that replaces Queenie who then immediately starts flirting with Eddie when they meet. And it's just like, see, this is, a this is not going to end well for anyone. Like this is just a cycle that's going to repeat. <laughs> But the movie doesn't seem to acknowledge that whatsoever. Um, and it ends with uh, Hank sort of going off to Peoria to do her show and saying, it's cream in the can, baby. 
which I assume has some good connotation, but I have no idea what that means. Oh, God. Yeah, wait. I just wrote down another one of the mean things that was said. I know this is not related, but they're talking about, like, <laughs> like sh- showing someone, showing Hank's, like, profile, like, the side of her face. Someone says, your profile was ruined the day you were born. Oh, horrible, horrible, horrible. I keep, I keep looking at my notes and just, like, write, like, <laughs> just yeah. looking at all the heinous stuff that people said that I wrote down. Yeah. Some other awful things that AE does is there's, there's a bit right where they're talking about how like Queenie is sort of like going off on her own and like getting involved and it was, you know, man of low character or whatever. And Hank is like, Hey, well at least I still have you to Eddie. And Eddie is like, bye. (laughs) Immediately just leaves. Um, And then later he's talking to Queenie and he says to her, whether you like me or hate me, you got to pay attention to me. Which is some masculine bullshit right there. That is, like, so exemplary of, like, male entitlement, I feel like. The best thing about Eddie is that he has got an extremely New York-y accent. (laughs) Uh, He says things like, certainly. And he says, I'll sing you a voice. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Maybe that's a good segue to our next movie, which is also a bad sound musical with a lot oh. of New York accents in it. Uh, I guess, Unless you have I guess something else to say. The the last stuff, that I, I want to say a couple of things about just like the the way that having sound is, is affecting this movie and mm. um, the ways that in this movie in particular, more than the one we're about to talk about next, I think there are things that they just have not, their, their minds are in a silent mode and they haven't done, mm. they, they're not doing talking properly. So... In a silent movie, when people are having a dramatic moment, right? There's some dialogue, and then people are just kind of staring at each other uh, with yeah. emotion on their face. And because it's silent, they they can break time a little bit. You're just kind of imagining how mm-hmm. the conversation would go. But what they're doing is just taking a moment to just hang on someone's face as they emote silently. And they do that a couple times in this movie, and it's so awkward because <laughs> the, the the conversation just stops to look at someone's face for a while. Yeah, I did notice that. Like, very weird pacing things where it's just, like, it will stop, like, mid-scene just to, like, cut to people's faces, but not in a way that feels natural or... or uh, yeah like it has any place there it's the kind of thing that would have been entirely acceptable in a silent movie but when you're doing a movie with sound dialogue the 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 conversation has to flow naturally and the cinematography has to follow it has to be in service of a naturally flowing conversation and in those instances they're using an antiquated cinematography that did not quite Mm. match up it does almost feel like a lot of the filmmaking in this and, and the other early sound features feels like it's kind of going backwards. Like they need to like, they need to simplify so much to accommodate for sound that it's like the actual, a lot of the actual filmmaking feels like it's it's regressed almost a little bit. Sure. Yeah. There are some, at the very beginning, there are some like nice establishing like helicopter shots. Of Probably airplane shots. Maybe yeah. airplane shots, but it's that's kind of uh, 
yeah, the most adventurous yeah. cinematography thing that happens. This maybe movie. maybe balloon or airship shots. Who's to say? Yeah, Zeppelin. Uh, another kind of remnant of silent filmmaking in this movie is that they're not using dialogue or kind of visual language to do establishing shots or that kind of mm. thing. There are just title cards that say like a yeah. hotel on 42nd street or uh, three clunky. weeks later. Right. Like, yeah. And so it's it, like, they have not understood how to make a not silent movie yet. You know, right. Uh, they, they're like, we don't know how to justify this, this transition in space without having a title card that's telling you what's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but so then it's still just of... like all the sound cuts out for those. And it's just like a now an intertitle. Yeah. In yeah. a movie that doesn't need them. Yeah. Another thing about the sound is that the mixing is awful, which. Well, yeah. <laughs> is to be expected in many, in some ways. Right. But you'd think that like th- they had a lot of trouble making this movie. They were figuring out how to make a silent mm-hmm. a sound movie while they were making it. Yeah, they, they had to shoot a bunch of scenes more than like more than once. I think, right? Just to like, yeah, like they're, get, they're, get the sound right. Their rushes not, would come back, and they'd go like, "Oh, this is crap. We gotta do it right. again." Basically. Not like doing multiple takes like we would normally in a movie, but I mean, like filming a scene, developing the film, getting it back the next day or days later, and being like, "Oh, this is terrible. We gotta redo this." Yeah, <laughs> and doing that for almost every scene of the movie. Uh, and and so yeah. It makes sense, although it's just, you'd think that maybe, I, I think it reached a, a low bar of acceptability of just how, like, cacophonous and poorly mixed mm-hmm. the sound is. There's a, there's a part with tap dancing in this movie that where the tap dancing is so quiet. <laughs> it's, it's focusing on these feet tap dancing for, like, a minute or a minute and a half, and it's just a whisper of every tap. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, two two other quick things um, about this movie are that their uncle Jed, the the, the sisters, have mm-hmm. a kind of manager esque of, of an uncle, mm-hmm. uh, and he does like a Porky Pig kind of routine. Yeah, um, he has a stutter, like a very exaggerated, cartoony stutter. But like, but then he does the Porky Pig joke of like stuttering to say something, and then saying like a kind of alternate version yeah. of that mm-hmm. thing. Uh, I guess it's like a way that they're trying to use sound. It's like here's a new joke that we can tell. Uh, yeah. Uh, with sound. Uh, and then my last note is this and um, and Pandora's box both have some fairly explicit. Uh, queer characters in them. True, yeah. Uh, Pandora's Box, one of the characters who is wrapped into the obsession with Lulu is a woman, uh, and she... uh, And she's kind of wealthy. She's the countess, I think, and then Mm -hmm. uh, ends up kind of giving a lot of money and falling in with their disreputable gang for a while just because she's so obsessed with Lulu. Um, and in this movie, there's a costume designer, uh, of the, the Broadway melody who, uh, he's like, it's, it's very specifically like, we're like, he's gay, but we're not going to specifically say it, but they do 
all the like right yeah. up, uh, all, right up all of the, all of the cliche sort of mannerisms. Yeah. He's got limp wrists. He kind of talks in an effeminate way. But I think most notably, um, there is there's like a part where like their their hats are not fit, like the 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 dancers' hats are not mm-hmm. fitting through the doors. Uh, and he's talking to the prop designer. Or, or the uh, the kind of set designer, and he says, "I design the costumes for the shows, not the doors." And then she says, "I know that. If you had, they'd been done. They'd have been done in lavender." Which, <laughs> like, that's right up until saying it. Oh yeah, so yeah. people. There's another part where he kind of like giggles a bunch, and some people mock him giggling and call him mm-hmm. a cutie. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not. Uh, it's not the most positive representation I, of of queer characters necessarily but like no it's uh it's not like hateful necessarily either it's i mean it's it's kind of poking fun at at that character a bit yeah yeah. it is it is somewhat mocking i think the the kind of depiction in in uh pandora's box is is less deliberately sort of mocking in that way like yeah i mean i think lulu the character is kind of has it's kind of romantically linked to both men and women in the movie just like Louise Brooks was in real life, even though she considered herself heterosexual, even though she had relationships with women a couple times in her life. Um, whereas that at least feels like it's coming from a, a more sort of genuine place, I guess. Whereas this right. feels more like it's, it's sort of a joke for the joke's sake. But I guess even like acknowledgement is kind of like this level of acknowledgement is fairly unprecedented. True. Yeah. And I think bo- both these movies are kind of examples of the the era that we're in in filmmaking now, which is pre-code. So it's like there is sound, but it's the Hayes Code hasn't really started being enforced that much yet. So there's mm-hmm. like a lot more kind of explicit references to sexuality and to crime and things like that that mm-hmm. aren't, you know, by like the mid 30s are going to get stripped away. Right. Uh, well, I ruined the segue earlier, but we can segue again by talking about, uh, the movie that is by the first out lesbian director, uh, there you go. Asner. uh, um, a different segue to a different film than what I was intending earlier. Oh, really? But, okay. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> now let's, let's talk about, uh, the wild party. Yes. Yeah, so this is Clara, uh, Clara Bow vehicle. Mm-hmm. Her first talkie. So this is a movie about a an all girls college, uh, and the kind of uh, free spirited uh, Stella, played by Car- Clara Bow, who uh, is our main character, and she's just trying to have a good time. And once again, there's a bunch of like dumb, like dumb, cruel men all around <laughs> her who uh, are ruining her time, basically. And I mean the the difference here and I don't know how much of this I'm projecting onto the movie is that this one is directed by a woman whereas the other ones aren't it's yeah. it wasn't it was written by two men but still um I do feel like this movie is a little bit less judgmental of its main character I don't think it's that judgmental at all honestly but I, I think I feel like uh I feel like the other movies are I feel like Broadway Melody and uh and Pandora's Box feel kind of judgmental towards the characters in them, whereas this doesn't as much. Yeah. This feels like it's actually sort of a story being told from this character's perspective. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's still it's still the twenties. It's still kind of a little, <laughs> you know, it's still a little silly to right. to modern eyes. I think, but um, I enjoyed this much. I I don't think this movie is even that good, but I enjoyed it so much more than the other sound movies that we watched. That <laughs> I'm like, it felt like such a breath of fresh air, and that it like is competently made as opposed to the the other two. You know, it still has some of the pitfalls of of early sound movies. There there are some awkward line readings. There's some strange mm-hmm. pauses, uh, but I think it like it feels more like a real movie than than the mm-hmm. other ones. Yeah, it feels so much less clunky than there's another movie that also feels clunky that we haven't talked about yet. But this one felt at least like it was making an effort to actually have a story that flowed and scenes that make sense together yeah in that order (laughs) and like (laughs) characters that act remotely human yeah although although i did use that word i i I did use that 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 key word in my notes here i said pretty clunky story but it is less so than that's uh, what i mean this movie is pretty clunky but it's so much less clunky than somebody (laughs) that was released this year that it's like oh my god this this kind of like very middling movie it feels like a a masterpiece compared to some other stuff <laughs> right so we start with uh clara bow is at an all, all girls college um uh clara bow from wings and it which we didn't talk about um but you speak very highly of um they're sort of famous the thing this movie is famous for i guess in addition to just being clara bow's first talkie is that um, because Clarabeau had so much trouble hitting her marks for the sort of planted microphones they had on set, Dorothy Arzner, the director, devised putting a microphone on a fishing pole and following her around with that, which led to the boom mic, which is what we still use now. So I don't know how like true that story is, but this movie is sort of credited as the thing that sort of led to the development of the boom microphone. So that's cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, all sorts... Like, these movies, they're having to do so much to figure out how to do sound properly. And in the mm-hmm. next year, I'm I'm getting the sense that, like, many advancements have been... have Are being mm-hmm. rapidly made in technology to make yeah. these movies yeah. not as crappy as, uh, <laughs> as they are now. Uh, the basic plot of this is that uh, she is... Um, yeah, she's like a kind of free-spirited college student. She's trying to have fun and have a good time. Uh, and there is an anthropology professor who uh, she is sweet on. Uh, yeah. He's an anthropology he's a- professor who is basically Indiana Jones in this movie. Like, <laughs> he's an anthropology professor that all of the girls are making the eyes, fluttery eyes at. Yeah. And he gets into fist fights and talks about his time in the jungle. <laughs> He's Indiana Jones if he were actually enough of a creep to uh, to right, take, yeah. take up that girl with the uh, on her offer that she wrote on her eyelids in, in, yeah. in the first movie, but uh, yeah, so she kind of like pursues a relationship with him, and uh, and it's the sort of developing relationship between the two of them. This kind of tension of will he get fired for 
uh, going out with a student, uh, <laughs> rightfully, <laughs> and and will her RA narc on her about going out with a professor? <laughs> uh, and uh, but also like. I think that Clara Bow does a really good job selling it, but this is another movie where, like, Gil, the the anthropology professor, is just like a horrible person. <laughs> yeah, he, he's not he great. is so mean to everyone around him. Yeah, and and he's especially mean, almost performatively, so to to put push away any suspicion that they're together he's performatively mean to stella as well mm-hmm. uh, in front of all of these people he like makes her cry and leave the classroom and insults <laughs> her while she's leaving yeah uh, and then you know there's a point where she's like she's like do you hate me and he's like i do i hate you and i love you <laughs> it's it's yeah uh <laughs> Yeah, not not a great depiction of romance in general. I think it's it's a low bar, but I I do at least appreciate this movie acknowledging the sort of like moral problems of of a professor being in a romantic relationship with his student, and how it's like they could both the characters and the movie is only really fully okay with that once they both leave the college. I think that this movie has like a a, a valuable insight from a lesbian on mm-hmm. uh the the kind of like um i don't know the kind of like boorish male behavior uh yeah it's i think it's it it definitely stuck out to me that it feels less flippant in this movie it feels less of a joke and less of right. a like oh men will be men and more like yeah. oh no like more of like a genuine threat yeah it's like the 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 like drunken men in this movie are genuinely like threatening and scary in a way that they definitely are not in in the other movies that we watched mm-hmm. um which is like yeah good good job dorothy <laughs> like <laughs> um although yeah gill professor gill is still not not the best dude in the world that's the thing it's like i don't super buy their romance but i think the the amount that i do buy it comes from clara bow uh mm-hmm. and i think that the movie, well, the movie acknowledges that there are issues with their relationship, but, like, because it ha- kind of has this happy romantic ending, it kind of, you know, says, like, we've conquered all of the issues, but, like, mm-hmm. there's still, like, a lingering feeling of, like, this is not good, though, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I do think, yeah, I think Clara Bow is really good in this movie, and I think uh, makes a transition to sound well, even though I think her career kind of suffered from it. Yeah. Like I know that when this movie came out, people were very critical of her voice specifically. Her Brooklyn accent. <laughs> her Brooklyn accent and also just I guess like the pitch of it, which I think has more to do with the quality of the microphones in the nineteen twenties than her voice. But it's it is kind of wild to me that like people were critical of, of like Clara Bow's sound performance being like, Oh, she like can't hack it as in talkies. I'm like, I thought she was very good in this. No, yeah, she was she was good, I thought. Yeah, I don't know. Anything else to say about this movie? Um well there's there's some funny lines of dialogue, not necessarily intentional. I mean, there's a bit uh so like Professor Gill fights off some drunken dudes that are like trying to kidnap Stella at one point. Um and he later gets shot by them off screen and she finds out over the phone. It's like, oh Professor Gill's been shot. 
And the person telling her was like, oh, it's just in the shoulder. It's not dangerous. It's like, what? <laughs> yes, it is. You can't get shot in the shoulder and just shrug it off. Um, and yeah, <laughs> it's like... they they shot your shrug off. Yeah. Um, I think this movie incorporates like music and singing into its scenes in ways that feel natural and make sense. Unlike some other movies. <laughs> it um, is, um, it, it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not a, musical a musical at all. It's a drama. It's like a romantic drama, but yeah, um, it has scenes of music and singing in it that feel like they are just like, yeah, this is a scene where people are singing and not like, stop everything and just have a long unbroken shot of someone playing an instrument. Yeah. Um, someone else uses the word skunk as an insult in this movie, which made me laugh. Um, shut up, Doug. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there's a really fun moment of performance, uh, from Clara Bow that I'm not sure was scripted or not. There's a moment where Gil holds his finger up to her face to like shush her. And she bites his finger and then kind of like laughs to herself about it. And that was something that I was like, it goes by so quickly. And yet it's like, that. it's great. And I'm like, I, that strikes me as something that might have just happened in the moment. I don't know. Um, <laughs> she seems like a fun gal. Yeah, it, it is. So yeah, we both had to watch this movie by finding like a weird, like bootleg taped off of TCM version of it online. Which is a real bummer, because, like, this movie exists. It just isn't available on any physical media or streaming anywhere. Um, but I think it's it's a it feels very exemplary of, like, 1929 filmmaking as a whole. Like, it thematically ties in with a lot of the other stuff you watched. Mm-hmm. It's, gonna, it's an early talkie, but I think it's a better early talkie than the other stuff that we watched for this year. Yeah. Um, it's just, like... It's a shame that this movie isn't more easily accessible than it is. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a decent one. If you're gonna watch yeah. a nineteen twenty nine talkie of the three that we're that we're doing, yeah. the uh this one is the one that is the most consistent quality, certainly. Yeah. And that that's not even to say that it's a great movie. It's fine. <laughs> but at least it isn't terrible. <laughs> Speaking of terrible movies. Ah, <laughs> The coconuts. The coconuts. So, I hated this movie. What did you think? Oh, I, I, I had a lot of fun with it, actually. <laughs> so, this this was the first talkie that I watched of the three. Yeah, me too. Um, And I was immediately struck by, like, how clunky it was and how... This movie basically has no plot and is just a bunch of, like, vaudeville acts strung together. Correct. Poorly. Um... <laughs> And I don't think I laughed once, even though it is the most explicitly comedic of all of, all of the movies. Wow. Okay. Uh, uh, I I so this was adapted directly from a stage play mm-hmm. uh, that the Marx Brothers. This is the Marx Brothers. This is our first the Marx first Brothers Marx picture, and our and, first and the first. This is yes. their first. This is their motion picture debut. Uh, they um. They had done this, I think, in 1925 on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and I think it kind of fit more into the style of a Broadway review in certain ways. They had been sort of mm-hmm. um, semi-exiled from the vaudeville community and so took their act 
to Broadway, <laughs> but and, and kept it very vaudevillian. Um, and being a review, being Broadway, it's like there is a loose plot going on. Uh, but then there's also just a bunch of like, here, have a song now, you know, and it doesn't really connect that much. Uh, it's or something at that, all. <laughs> yeah, it's something that may work a little better on stage, but it, in 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 a film, it feels just random out of nowhere. Yeah, it feels random. It feels it. This movie more than the others, I think, feels like a step backward in terms of filmmaking, and that it is mm. at times literally just a filmed stage show. Right. Like there's very little editing going on. Like it's almost every scene plays out in like a single wide shot. Sometimes they'll sort of punch in to like show other things, but it's, it's like, (laughs) sometimes they'll punch in to show Groucho Marx mugging to the camera. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, but it's, it, it's the most, like, simplistic filmmaking that I've seen of anything that we've watched in, like, since, like, the 1910s, I feel like. It's, like, very, very just, like, did did we get it on camera? Good. Done. Moving on. <laughs> yeah, and including, like, there are a number of kind of awkward like pauses that were would be takes that you would normally not use. There mm-hmm. are parts where they, like, kind of mess up their lines a little bit yep. and they keep it in the movie. <laughs> um, uh, this this was happening... They were filming this... So the next Marx Brothers movie is Animal Crackers, which comes out in 1930, I believe. Mm-hmm. And uh, that was also adapted from a Broadway show. And it's a Broadway show that they were performing while they were making this movie. Mm-hmm. So they would shoot this movie... They shot this movie for about three weeks. They were shooting this movie in the day and then going and doing a Broadway show at night. And uh, and they were all, like, exhausted making this movie. <laughs> and they were... Um, they were sometimes kind of m- mixing the two of them in with each other in, 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 mm. in their minds. So apparently sometimes they would accidentally do, like, bits and routines from coconuts when they were performing animal crackers (laughs) and there is a part in coconuts where one of them one of them starts calling them calling another one the the name that they are in animal crackers and then corrects himself uh, (laughs) corrects himself to back to the other name and they keep that line in the movie (laughs) yeah yeah this movie feels very amateurish kind of like it feels like it's made by people who don't really know how to make movies which i guess in the case of the marx brothers is true like their performance style feels very not antithetical to movies but it's like it feels very stagey yeah um i mean this is this movie has two directors joseph santley and robert flory who co-directed the uh the life and death of a hollywood extra um right which is like very cinematic and very experimental. And then here it's like, I see none of that. <laughs> yeah. What was um, he doing here? <laughs> I mean, yeah, this is like the, the, I don't know. The, I don't necessarily dislike the Marx brothers shtick. I just don't think it works in this movie. I haven't seen their other stuff, but it's like, it's Groucho's whole thing is just banter. He just says a lot of things at once and all of them are jokes. Uh, usually with puns. 
See, Usually some kind of like wordplay, like dad jokey stuff. See, this is why I like this movie. <laughs> well, see, yeah. I mean, if that works for you, great. Like, there's, you know, he's like, don't throw that phone. That's only for long distances. It's like, <laughs> like, this whole movie is like one big long dad joke. And at, that didn't really work for me. But your mileage may vary, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, well, so this movie got like a couple of like really good guffaws out of me, honestly. Like, I, like, this movie is structurally a mess, but when you zoom into like particular parts of it, uh, parts that had been very well practiced and and honed on stage, you know, Groucho mm. is throwing out just like joke after joke after joke so fast that like you can't sometimes even parse the last joke before you get to the next one. Yeah, um, yeah. And, but they're all like very like carefully constructed wordplay, I think, mm-hmm. um, and. So, I think, especially with Groucho and uh, Harpo, um, like, the, they they have hammered out their routines very well. And so, the moments that you can just zoom in on them doing their comedy, I think, work as well as if you were watching them on a stage. Uh, it's just, like, you know, it's not very cinematic. Uh, yeah, I also just found them to be very annoying more than funny in this movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely Harpo. With the, except- who- with the exception of Zeppo, who doesn't get anything funny to do, he's just also there, as is the Zeppo way. <laughs> um, but, yeah, that combined with the, the, the clunkiness of the filmmaking, combined with the fact that I didn't really find the Marx Brothers prickly funny, made this, this was a rough sit for, this was a, a slog to sit through. For me, and there was a couple little chuckles, maybe, but like, um, I feel like a lot of it is that the a lot of the comedy doesn't feel organic or motivated by anything. It's just jokes for jokes' sake. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. the wordplay isn't coming from something where it's like they're not setting up why anyone is saying this stuff. People are just saying things because it's a joke. But it's like <laughs> you can't just walk into a room and say something funny and then leave and expect me to be okay with that. <laughs> like it feels it feels very quantity over quality yeah you know yeah yeah it's yeah it's it's very yeah it's it's not made well certainly but i one thing that i think is good about this movie uh, as a movie is i think it is the the only of the three talkies that we've seen to really emphasize talking Right. Mm, yeah, and like l- use of language. Yeah, a- as yeah. through dialogue. Yeah, like this sure. is doing jokes that you couldn't do in a silent movie. There, mm-hmm. there are some yeah. like silent physical comedy jokes, but like a lot of the stuff with Groucho and uh, and Chico, it mm-hmm. is um, it's it's wordplay. It's like fast, snappy dialogue. It's the kind of thing that you expect from '30s movies of this like yeah. like really just snappy, fast, fast and, talking banter. Yeah. And so it feels like a like a prototype for a lot of these kind mm-hmm. of uh, you yeah. know th- these these '30s comedies, um, and I'm I'm interested to see in the future Marx Brothers movies how they refine that. But like, but yeah, these the other two movies that we watched they kind of almost incidentally have talking and mm-hmm. and it's like a gimmick. Where this one it's like okay we're gonna take a very dialogue heavy stage show and then 
and then use that now that we have the ability to have dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, there's still like a lot of a lot of jokes, a lot of dad joke type stuff. <laughs> uh, you want to get a hold of Mrs. Potter? I don't know. She's awfully ticklish. And then uh, I have a pass key to every hotel room, every room in the hotel. And then someone says pass key, and he says pass key. That's Russian for pass. You know, they passed they pass key down the street the street ski. Har uh, <laughs> har har, Groucho. But, I mean that one in particular. It feels uh, uh, it feels very like uh, like airplane, you know, uh, in a, like kind you could, of. You could see that yeah. wordplay, the the Groucho Marx style wordplay, uh, yeah. having being like the root of of that that type of comedy. That whole like a hospital. What is it? It's a building with sick people in it. You yeah, know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I I was definitely reminded of. I think the Three Stooges have a similar type of comedy. Mm-hmm. They're also like a bunch of like some brothers from New York that like yeah, who slap each did other comedy. around a bit. Yeah, right. Um, I've seen a lot of the, a lot more Three Stooges than Marx Brothers, and I tend to like the Three Stooges more. But those are later, and maybe like the Marx Brothers will sort of get into their own. They'll refine their comedy a bit more, and I'll I'll enjoy the later ones more. Um, but I could definitely see their influence on later comedians, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen any other Marx Brothers stuff? No. Okay, yeah, me either. So, n- not a great first impression. But, <laughs> um, uh, I guess the other, one other note is Harpo, uh, who is silent, and I guess that's mm-hmm. his shtick, is that he doesn't, yeah. he doesn't talk, and kind of... He, he, is, he honks a horn instead. <laughs> yeah. He's more, he's like a clown. He, uh... Yeah. He... He honks a horn. He he does. He walks around and harasses people. <laughs> and, yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of the stuff, the comedy from him is just like random. You know, <laughs> like yes. He he walks around <laughs> and you know he's near somebody, and so he just like starts eating the handkerchief out of their pocket or whatever. You know. Yeah. It's, yeah. But it, uh, it is like I found a lot of his antics more annoying than funny. Or it's just like, get this guy out of here. <laughs> Right, and then there's just a part that's like uh, two minutes long where he just plays the harp for no reason. Yeah, unbroken shot of him just playing the harp, I which is how he got his nickname. I see, yeah, yeah, that is how he got his nickname. It was like, he plays the harp. But it's like, they never explain why his character plays the harp. That doesn't lead to another joke later on. It's it's just a non sequitur. Now he yeah. plays the harp for a minute and a half. And it's yeah. like, it it often feels more like a variety show than a movie, you know, where it's just like yeah. things happen, but not for any reason, which I think, I think on, on stage you can kind of get away with. Like now this act, now this act, whereas this is trying to kind of make a plot out of it and it doesn't work. I think my, my favorite Harpo joke in this movie is uh, they're uh, they're kind of goofing around and, and like harassing a guy and um, and, you know, it's they're also like a couple pickpockets and petty criminals mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. And so this guy like kind of, he reveals, he pull he pulls his jacket open and reveals a badge that he's a police officer. And mm-hmm. then Harpo opens his jacket and he's got a liquor bottle. Inside. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, so yeah, that's like a, a good sight gag. There are a couple of those in this movie that were probably like the only chuckles I got. That's one. There's another good, uh, Harpo, gag where him and chico go to break a guy out of jail and harpo like appears like enters frame carrying like five different giant tools like a pickaxe a shovel like all this stuff to like (laughs) and then he just has the key and he opens it but like 
there was a couple of good sight gags like that where I'm like, well, at least they're like using it's a visual medium, like have some jokes in there. Yeah, I mean, I think one like visual, fairly visual and filmic joke that they do, although this may be something that they could do on stage, was like a Scooby-Doo Looney Tunes style, like go in one door and go out another door and run back and forth kind yeah. of thing. I think that probably could be done on stage. Um, again, like my my problem with that is that it's like there's no reason why anyone is running through any of the doors. They're just doing right. it because it's a joke. And so it's like there's no <laughs> sense of like tension or reason I should think this is funny other than like it goes on too door funny too. yeah and like that reminded me of in one of the buster keaton shorts uh that i don't think we talked about on the show but i watched uh the goat there's a bit where with like four different rooms like two on the upper floor two on the lower floor and people chasing each other through all the rooms and like through the ceiling and through the floor and all those all around and in the same sort of like cross-section style shot but it's like that, we've had the whole movie to set up why that's happening and why we should care about the characters and who is chasing who and why. And it's like, it's basically the same joke, but done so much better. And that was like at least five or six years before this movie. And so it's just like, ah, come on, do better. <laughs> do better, Marx Brothers. That's right. Uh, well, I guess that's about it for this year. Uh, Glenn, yeah. what was your favorite movie of this of 1929? Do we count? Are we counting shorts? Yeah. Then Skeleton Dance. <laughs> like, for sure. No question. Nice. Uh, you know, I initially, for a, for a while, I was thinking that Coconuts might actually be my favorite, just because, like, I laughed pretty hard at that movie. But, I think it was my uh, least favorite. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that I, maybe out of respect for what it's doing, I um, I will go with Man with a Movie Camera. Mm. There you go. Yeah. Uh, and so that's about it for that's that's all for the nineteen twenties. They're over. Yeah. That's the whole twenties. They've they've roared, and, and like and that except was for a, for a few exceptions, like we're kind of done with silent movies too. Like there'll be a few more in the thirties that we talk about, but like by nineteen twenty nine, they're they're kind of out, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, we've kind of half transitioned into sound, but uh, the next year, it's like a bona fide classic in All Quiet on the Western Front. Um, right, yeah. And I haven't seen that movie in more than 15 years, probably, uh, so I don't really remember too much about it, but mm. I I feel like it would have been more obvious if the sound were this uh, bad, uh, <laughs> if, if it were this poorly put together as the, as these movies are. So maybe they find, they figure it out pretty quickly. We're getting into the 30s. Yeah, it's exciting. Uh, yeah. The next episode that we're going to be doing is our decade, every decade wrap-up episode. Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to be watching Singing in the Rain and Babylon, which are two versions of the same movie mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> that uh, uh, talk about the transition from sound from silent to sound mm -hmm. and uh yeah i was just going down our top tens of the decade i haven't yeah. figured mine out yet but that's uh um, that's exciting that we'll get to do that yeah 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 i haven't so, i haven't made my list yet either so we'll we'll have we'll 
figure yeah. out what kind of takeaways that we have from the entire indeed, decade indeed. and what we're thinking about for the 1930s. So join us next time for that one. And uh, join us the time after that for our first episode in the 1930s. Uh, it's going to be, we got the Wizard of Oz. We got King Kong. We got the... the Movies. <laughs> <laughs> Frank Capra movies. It happened one yes. night. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Some good ones coming up. Yeah. Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy. We're getting into the universal horror era and we're getting into the Criterion Collection fast talking old guys <laughs> era. Uh yeah. That's about as it for this. As it's known. <laughs> fast talking old guys uh they're not old in the movies necessarily but they're old now if they're still alive true uh yeah yeah that's it follow us <laughs> on the social stuffs and uh, and you know have a good time say hi leave a comment uh and and tell us about uh what movies from the 30s we should watch we're Indeed, excited yeah. to get into the sound era. The sound era didn't really get off to a good start, really. But um, <laughs> but also, I I love silent movies, but I'm looking forward to something that isn't going to be like... Um, silent movies take a lot out of you to watch them. Yeah, they, they demand, I think, a little bit more attention. Like, you, you really can't let your attention waver at all, mm-hmm. which is like... Seeing them in the theater is great, but also, yeah, watching them, like, at home, sometimes it is, like, wait a minute, I miss, like, a bunch of things because I looked away for, like, half a second. Yeah. It'll it'll be nice to, to check out some regular movies. <laughs> yeah, you know, regular movies with talking in them. Yeah. We're just spinning our wheels right now. Let's end yeah. this episode. Glenn. Indeed. I'll see, see you, you next year. year.